Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Morning again, everyone here on the 21st of July. Delighted to be with all of you as fellow journeyers, followers of Jesus. If you're not following Jesus this morning and happen across the dial and are listening, whether through the internet or an app or one of the stations that we carry, he really is worth following. And uh, and sometimes organizational Christianity, we mess things up and, and are broken and fallen as well. But that does not diminish the beautiful Jesus in whom we put our trust and who we follow as well. So this is Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge again this morning in studio with Paul Perot, the producer, and Bill English, who will be joining me in just a moment live on air, as well as in studio. And I want to just take a minute here at the top of the hour to give a shout out to one of those faithful faith radio followers of Jesus that I had a chance to meet this past weekend. Uh, I don't often do weddings anymore. It's a bit like putting on Saul's armor for me. I love the the formality and the tradition of weddings. I'm just not great at facilitating it, but I had a chance to facilitate the wedding of a young person that I've known for many years and his family as well. And and in this situation, got a chance to meet his extended family, including uh, somebody who has listened faithfully to this station for so many years, and uh, it just has a wonderful twinkle in her eye as well. And I think the thing that really struck me in, in terms of being a part of the celebration is there's so many different things that we cover that are troubling in our world. And, and we talk about finding hope, and hopefully we can even find hope in some of these headlines. I know earlier today we talked with Daryl Crouch. You'll want to catch the podcast about how to handle gun violence and some of the troubling headlines that we see there. So there, there's so many of these things that we cover, and we hope there is hope. And so it's delightful then when we actually have a chance to find hope. And I, and I found hope in the way that this family was not perfectly, but was shining the light of Jesus into the world. And what I saw when I was there was uh, talking with the grandmother of the family that uh, she had been married some 50 odd years ago, had lost her husband just two years recently. But when she was married 50 years ago, there was five people in her bridal party. And uh, and all of them have stayed married for over 50 years and have been friends as well. And then uh, one of our Faith Radio listeners, uh, Peggy is her name, uh, same kind of situation. I got a chance to then meet her generations that came from her, a uh, lovely daughter and son that read at the wedding as well. And now we have another generation coming from them. And I think what really struck me as I had a chance to talk over dinner with uh, some of these beautiful people, as well as the grandmother, is that life was not always easy. We just got done talking about the cost of surrender with Gary Stratton last hour. And, and in those those rigors of marriage, uh, the, the difficulties that come up, the, the long seasons where you doubt and you wonder and romance seems dead and companionship seems lost, that uh, she talked pretty openly and frankly with me just about the decisions that she made behind the scenes that weren't always easy. And and of course, God meets us in his beautiful grace and all versions of our failings, including divorce, can restore the future. All of those uh, realities are so terribly true and beautifully true in his kingdom. But what I saw was that all of the decisions that she made that probably didn't feel like easy decisions to make and wondered why she was even making the decisions to stay in the journey and to keep surrendering, well... 
that all came to fruition this last weekend where now the generations that came, these uh, two beautiful young people, 21-year-old, uh, were able to say their vows in the context of this incredible extended family uh, of where the, the generational blessing of marriage had been passed down and passed down. And it was just this wonderful celebration. And so wherever you find yourself this morning in making those hard choices, sometimes if you have had to walk through divorce or some of the family fractures, you still can start a new pathway forward for the generations to come. And as you, if you have had a, a chance to make difficult decisions and, and stay in the marriage, you are also setting the foundation of generations to come. Uh, it is not just the big important people on the radio and the big important people with fancy robes, blah, 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 all of that, that are doing the light shining of the kingdom. It's actually in those quiet spaces in which we make those choices, some of which we see, some of which we don't, in which the seeds are sown for future generations. And I got a chance to see it with this beautiful family this weekend. So thanks for being such great ambassadors and witnesses. I'm sure if you had a chance to all tell me your stories, we would have similar things to say. Well, up next, another person who I know is following Jesus as well. He does it in the context of business, joins us regularly. We're going to celebrate the end of his seventh year and the beginning of his eighth year. Bill English will be joining us, talk a little bit about Bible and business. It is Wednesday morning, and that means that the faithful, ever-faithful Bill English is joining us in studio, bringing his wisdom and his insights from an angle that only he can as part of this morning show group that we are a part of. And, Bill, it's great to have you here in studio. My understanding is is that you've been covering things like business ideas and work and employment uh, and how it intersects with biblical teaching as well, just finishing up your seventh year here on the Faith Radio Network, right? Yeah, that's true. I've, I've been here now seven years as a guest. Right. Uh, and I'm starting my eighth year, and I I am very, very grateful, in all honesty, very grateful and very honored that uh, Faith Radio would have me on for seven years. This yeah, is, you, this has just been a wonderful ride. You've seen and worked with a lot of people here in the mornings. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. it's been quite the journey for you. Yeah, it has. I started with Ted and PK, and Paul, you're going to have to check me on this in terms of the order, and then after that, I was on with Austin Hill until he passed, which was personally very difficult that for was me. hard that november was hard of 2015 was hard losing yep. austin i, I yep. remember when dick worth called me and i just started to ball how could yes. you not because yeah. uh, austin and i were becoming good friends and then after austin it was well briefly bill arnold then yes. we had bill meyer and right. then bill arnold came back in permanently right then it's peter for a little while yeah probably a good year with you yeah peter, it was good it? it was a fun time together yeah yeah and, and then good, carmen and then that carmen time. yeah and and i know i know who you prefer Bill. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> don't answer that question. I know, I know, I'm like number seventh on that list, but it's great to have you. It's been delightful no, to talk about these different uh, things with with you. Just all of these mornings, right? Bible and business stuff, and I know even some of the topics that we're going to talk about this morning are, are top of the mind with people. I was talking with somebody this last weekend about the business that they're a part of, mm-hmm. and they literally now, post pandemic, will never maybe see an office again. Their office is at home. They're working remotely day yeah. in and day out, and and even their headquarters, if there is such a thing for the company anymore, is maybe five miles down the road. And yet this person is now working out of the home. Tell us a little bit about what's happening. Is this sort of a, a semi-permanent or even permanent shift? I'm seeing big corporations leaving downtown areas because they don't need to pay all the leasing space anymore. Is this a good thing, this kind of move towards working at home? Or what do you see in all of this? Yeah, I'll pick up on part of your question. Is it a good thing? The yeah. answer is yes. Is it permanent? Yes, I think it is. Uh, we used to call it flex time. 
right, where you could be in the office part of the time and out of the office part of the time. Now that's going to be ensconced in most cultures, in most businesses around the United States and maybe even around the world. Right. Um, <clears throat> that's the, the hybrid model here is is going to lead to some interesting things. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal article that you and I read as part of our prep for this was talking about how managers tend to rate the performance of employees in the office higher than they do of remote workers or flex workers, even though uh, their work output is the same. So there's going to be some biases there that managers are going to have to start to overcome and say, you know, I have to really actually work, look at the work product not just are they here and maybe I like one person more than another. But the reality is we're social beings. And so um, <clears throat> so it, it just seems to me that um, we tend to value more highly what's in front of us yeah. in terms of interpersonal than we do uh, doing things remotely. But, yeah, this hybrid model, it's here to stay. Well, so I, I, let's keep stepping into that a little bit because the perception I think we have, and whether it's fair or unfair, I don't entirely know, but certainly the perception is somebody who's working more out of the home is is maybe working for half an hour and then grabbing some iced tea and then making working for another 15 minutes and then checking out a Netflix episode and then working for 20 minutes and TikToking their way through the next part of it, the, these sorts of things. But I'll say it too, Bill, in fairness, maybe even to that perception a little bit, is that I... I asked my students some pretty frank questions this last last semester as so many of them were Zooming into class. So I had some students in person and I had some students that were Zooming in and I asked them a question. So are you dialed into the lecture? I assume you're not dialed into my lecture and, and our conversation this entire time. You're probably doing other things. And when students felt the freedom and, and without fear to answer the question, they acknowledged. They said, yeah, I'm, I'm not catching really all of what's happening here compared to the students in class who are totally engaged. So do you think there's some some fairness? Because you talk about you're likely to get passed over for promotions or not, not maybe seen as valuable to the organization if you're constantly working remotely when there's people right in front of us. But is there some fairness to that, do you think? Well, I think you're comparing apples to oranges <coughs> a little bit. Which I want um, to do, yeah. <coughs> well, the analogy it, doesn't work. Yeah, uh, because in part, students are only measured by their grade, and if they don't really care about the class, then they may not care about their grade. I'm not saying that students would not care about your class. I'm sure, sure that they all um, highly value what you teach. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when, you're, when you've got a paycheck on the line, it becomes a little bit different. Having said that, what Gartner shows, what the Gartner studies show, is that um, <clears throat> employees who are working from home are actually more engaged and more productive than they are uh, working out of the office. But the second part of that is that managers and companies are still trying to manage remote employees from an office-centric viewpoint rather than a person-talent viewpoint, cent uh, talent-centric viewpoint, okay? And so <clears throat> companies are going to have to learn how to uh, adjust their um, how they manage employees so that they become more talent centric rather than office centric. So one of, for for example, the number of meetings has increased for remote employees because managers want to know that they're there, so they include them in more meetings. Right, uh, and that's actually decreasing morale and and decreasing productivity. So there's some challenges that companies are going to have to face here. Uh, but I, you know, I, I manage a company of 700 employees. There's about 60 people in the in the core office, and the rest of the employees work uh, away from the office. And uh, I would say that our culture has never been better, and our productivity has never been higher than in the last 12 to 18 months with people working remotely and flex timing. Yeah, I think that's the flip side of the argument, right? Is that I. I 
the idea that somebody just needs to be sitting in a cubicle for 50 hours a week and that represents productivity and outcome yeah. and talent is simply not the case. In fact, I think most studies show that the more space and kind of rhythms people can get into sort of weaving in and out of their workday even. I mean, there's a reason why many places in Europe just head out for the afternoon and take a two-hour nap before they come back. There, there are practices in all of that that actually we can help steward our people's sort of well-being if, if we're uh, managers or employers and, and at the same time, uh, people can say, you know what, I, I don't need to give my whole life to this work, right? I mean, we as followers of Jesus, <clears throat> yeah. there's things that are even important in some of the rhythms of the day. Yeah, for sure. And and speaking of the naps, I found myself sleeping the other day at about one thirty. <laughs> I was great typing, moment. I was typing, and then and then I woke up and I go, oh man, I've been asleep for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something about that reset and that recharge that really matters. That I think we can reevaluate it how really we're doing does. things in the midst of all of this. And you know, as 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 a as a CEO, do I really care if my people are sitting on the deck? Having having a pina colada while they work, I personally don't. Sure. So if that that improves their work life. Now, if Paul has a pina colada while he's running the, the board here. Yeah. Not going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's don't a different... Like- you don't like. Yeah, I we, don't like alcohol. I hate we, the we would have, we would have a lot. We would have a, a myriad <laughs> of issues if that was the case, Bill. But let's step away for just a moment. Come back and talk a little bit more about some different topics, including uh, some pretty interesting things happening with the private in- industry of space travel. And yes. I know that we saw some things with Jeff Bezos yesterday. I'd love your take on that, the meaning of that for our economy, but also the meaning of that for our future and industry in our country. So more to come here as we celebrate Bill English's beginning of his eighth year on the Morning Show. We say it so often in English. I don't know where Paul comes up with this stuff, but what a great lead into the space. What uh, is that? The, 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 I mean, Paul, help us out here. Is that, is that the Jetsons? No. no. <laughs> lost in space. It is lost in From space From the 1960s. Indeed. It's oh, a, and, I didn't know that. Danger, yeah, Will Robinson, date. Oh, come on. Yes. Well, we certainly hope that uh, some of these people that we I'm know sorry. did not get lost in space this time around, and Jeff I'm Bezos clueless. did not, uh, Bill. I'm curious what you see, though, in some of this, because so we talked a little bit about uh, some of the private space travel industry, yeah. and, and they learned a lot from NASA and government-funded organizations about how to do this on a private basis. But one of the things I think about uh, as being a believer is there's also there's always possibility and always hope. There's always like this wonder into the new frontier kind of thing. And at the risk of making an analogy that actually doesn't work at the end of the day, I don't want to equate space travel to anything uh, being believers. But at the same time, there is something that awakens the spirit when we get out of the familiar. And, and I think we're seeing some of these things that kind of just wakens the spirit a little bit and say, huh. I wonder what is in God's beautiful cosmos after all. And, and I'm not saying that these should be the people leading the way in spirituality at all, but but there is something pretty amazing about what's going on with this private space travel. Isn't it something that <clears throat> literally every person that goes to space talks about the beauty of space right. and how beautiful the earth is when you look at it from space, right? It's it's an awe-inspiring experience for them. So uh, when the when the scriptures say that the, that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Let's just use that phrase. There's a lot of glory out there that we haven't even seen yet. If we can, if I can use that analogy. No, I think it's a, a very apropos, uh, apropos analogy, Bill, because I think um, you know the, the heavens in Jewish thinking had three different layers to them. That when they used the word heaven, there would have been sort of just the the atmosphere around us that we breathe. There would have been the invisible realm in which God dwells, that was as close as our next breath. Those are the heavens. But the heavens you describe were also a part of the layers of heavens in Jewish thought, and that was the expanse of the stars. and And they declare the glory of God. I think. 
too often we risk diminishing God, right? And and I think we understandably pray and, and, and want God to intersect with our personal needs in our life. And the amazing thing about God is he does that. He knows the mm-hmm. very hair in our head. But I think the very fact that he knows the hair on our head can have the possibility of just completely breaking us in humility when you also at the same time are paying attention to the expanse of the stars. This very God that made all of this incredible universe also knows the hairs of my head. Now we have an opportunity to not diminish God, but to be grateful with humility of the God who intersects with our lives with care, even though he created the cosmos on top of it. And I think that's some of the invitation here. Yeah. So the God who knows the hairs on our head tells us that so that we can know his greatness. Right. And that should drive us to worship and praise him in a way that uh, produces awe-inspiring feelings and and reactions within us far beyond what the cosmos can ever produce. Yeah, it really is interesting to see. In terms of the future of this, and you know, it really does open up a, a number of different kinds of theological questions to start moving into space. I know there's sort of a budding industry that is about what are the implications if there is life outside of planet Earth. And, you know, we're talking... Uh, we, we think about it from our standpoint, you and I were talking off air that we've seen so much already in, in the time, the short span that we've been on life. But I think about my own grandfather. I mean, he started with yeah. no electricity, no plumbing. And by no. the time he passed away at the age of 96, he had seen the Internet. I mean, all of what he had seen. We right. don't know what's going to happen in the next 100, 200, 300 years of our world. Should we all still be here? But there is there's a lot that can open up as a result of some of this exploration. And if there's life outside of Earth. What are the implications of even those kinds of things? It's pretty interesting that theologians are starting to ask these questions. Well, whatever life might be out there, we have to remember that the Bible is true. We are made a little lower than the angels, and in heaven we will be, uh, to my way of thinking, and Heiser's, I, I know you've Absolutely, talked, Michael Heiser's you know, who you're you know, talking about, we'll, yes. We'll be part of the divine council. We'll be reigning with Christ. None of that changes. Right. Even if there is life out there, none of that changes. The scriptures are still true. Um, <clears throat> in terms of how this works uh, uh, down here on earth, um, most of the innovation for the Department of Defense comes from private contractors. Okay. The, the Northrop Grumman's of the world. Right. Okay. Right. And so you look at what Bezos and the other the other guy, I forget his name, um, are doing. Yeah, Elon Musk is one yeah. of the one of the people doing it. No, and... no, no, not Elon Musk. What was his name? Uh, who flew the? Who flew oh, the uh, Richard Branson. Yeah, Branson. yeah, they're all three doing part of the, the space oh, is, industry. I didn't yeah. know Musk was doing yep. that. But point is, is that they are going to be doing innovative things that NASA and the government just probably can't do for whatever reason. And they're going to be reselling that back to the Space Force, okay? Uh, and and I think in 20 or 30 years, people are going to look back on Trump's forming of the Space Force, which I thought was kind of comical at yeah, the time. Yeah, it was kind of um, it was surprising, this fifth branch, but also it's pretty relevant right now. But they're going to find it's very relevant and was very prescient. Yeah, it's interesting, again, looking forward to this, I think um, as long as we don't just celebrate that this doesn't become a Tower of Babel situation, right, where we're trying to determine what we as human beings can do to make a name for ourselves in the heavens. But if we use even these vehicles, even if they're not believers, but we use these vehicles to, again, magnify the wonder of God, we really do have an opportunity here to do that in the midst of this. Well, we do. And the more we go into space and the more we look at space and the more we we kind of discover what's out there, the more we're going to discover the glory of God. Yeah, And God will just kind of keep you know, knocking on our heart and say, I'm here. Are you guys seeing all this? I mean, you're, you're discovering this is all pointing to me. And are we going to finally say, yeah, there's intelligent design behind everything. There must be a power higher than us. There's too much integration, too much. A natural law could not have produced all this. Evolution could not have produced all of this. 
And are, are we eventually going to bow our knee to God and say, yeah, you are God? And I, I think the jury is out on that. I, I'm not optimistic. Without us preaching the word of God, without us going out and telling people, I think it's going to be very tough for people to find God, even though in a, in a sense, they'll be staring him in the face. Yeah, I think what's very interesting, Bill, is that increasingly scientists are acknowledging that there yeah. must be something else at the at the center of this. When you look at the realm of quantum physics, not just the universe that we're talking about now, but quantum physics, this unseen realm of molecular structures, they're saying... None of these things obey any of the laws of the universe. And so far as we understand it, gravity doesn't work here. One piece of material can appear in two places at the same time. Like all of it, none of it makes sense. And most quantum physicists to this day now are becoming believers as a result of their observations. And I think we might have the similar opportunity as we see the expanse of the stars. Yeah, the more we discover, the more we should be discovering God. Yeah, indeed. Well said. Well, thanks for your faithfulness all hey, of these welcome. years, Bill. It's just it's been a sweet friendship. I know the people that are part of our Faith Radio family so appreciate the insights you bring from this angle uh, of the Bible and the business and just wish you all the best for the year ahead. Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Love so it. Okay. Thanks. Well, we'll take a short break and do a little bit of bottom of the hour news, and when we come back for the last half of hour two here, we'll talk with Samuel James, who's part of the Gospel Coalition, and he's written an article about sort of some of the shifts within our secularization, liberalism, some different things that we see happening in our culture. Well, Paul, we were just talking a little bit about how the expanse of the heavens points to the glory of God, the wonder of his creation. So much of creation just sings the the praises and glory of God, the wonder of it all. I know C.S. Lewis was wont to say that if we could have been there in sort of the early stages of the earth, even just the size of the animals and and, then the purity and the wonder and the grandeur of the animal kingdom at that time would have pointed towards the glory of God. I've seen a little bit of that as I've stood on shores of Iceland at one point. It felt mm-hmm. a little bit like Genesis 1 yeah. where I was standing there, right? Just the beauty of creation. And we saw a little bit more of the beauty and, and, and profound nature of creation wash up on the shores of Oregon here recently where there was a colorful 100-pound fish. This was It was a goldfish is almost what it looks like. It certainly wouldn't fit in the little jar no. that I might have put in. This was a 100-pound fish of some kind that washed up in the shores of Oregon. Yes. Called an opa fish or a moon fish. It's th- this one is three and a half feet long. They usually don't make their way up to the Oregon area for where it washed ashore, but still... Yeah, I, that thing is huge. Oh, I love these stories. I just, I love how so much of God's creation, and, and even though we're living in the shadows, and even though uh, creation is longing for its release, it still points to the wonder of God. So bring up a fun fish story this morning, but their reason for it is there's just so much known and unknown about the kingdom in which we dwell, <clears throat> and the God who is at the center of it all. Well, stay with us. We're going to talk a little bit about liberalism, conservatism, and some different ways in which Christianity intersects with those philosophical systems up next on Mornings Without Carmen. This is Max Licato. In one of Henri Nouwen's books, he tells about the lesson of trust he learned from a great trapeze artist. The acrobat said, The flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. I have simply to reach out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. In the great trapeze act of salvation, God is the catcher and we are the flyers. We trust, period. We rely solely upon God's ability to catch us. And as we do trust him, a wonderful thing happens. We fly. Your father has never dropped anyone. He will not drop you. His grip is sturdy and his hands are open. Place yourself entirely in his care. And as you do, you will find it is possible, yes, possible, to be anxious for nothing. This is Max Locato.
It is about 21 minutes for the top of the hour here on the 21st of July. I am Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen Liberta this morning. Mornings with Carmen in studio with Paul Perot and joined at this time by Samuel James, who is an editor at the Gospel Coalition. He's also an editor of Letter and Liturgy, an ongoing series, and he's also an editor of Crossway Books. Samuel, it sounds like you do a lot of editing in your life. Uh, quite a bit, but it's uh, it's good to be on with you. Yeah, so great to have you on here, too. I know that uh, one of the things that's probably top of the mind for many of us is what we see as the ongoing culture war in our country. And, and I think mm-hmm. as we talk about the culture war in our country, we can define some terms here, Samuel, just to help kind of get a foundation underneath us, but also wonder where does Christianity maybe fit with some of the different sides of the culture war, but maybe where it is wholly different as well, so we don't get caught up just kind of blending some of these ideas. So, yeah, there's a lot of buzzwords out there. There's things like conservatism or liberalism or socialism or capitalism. There's so many different terms here. But I think if we wanted to start with two basic terms that kind of to, to, to define the culture war, the first one might be libertarianism, which tends to emphasize more equal uh, rights for people, small government, um, limited intervention of the government. I think it often gets associated with conservatism, right? Meaning that we just want to keep the government out of play in, in people's lives. So would that be a fair definition? How would you describe libertarianism as one side of kind of this culture war? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, libertarianism tends to have a very uh, individualistic character, um, it's pretty open-minded, so to speak, about things like marijuana, uh, things like pornography. Um, the, the the kind of ethos of a libertarian would be, uh, you know, if the government doesn't have a, a compelling interest uh, to preserve personal liberties, then they should just let us do whatever we want. And that would contrast, I think, pretty sharply against the uh, classical conservative vision which grounds human flourishing in an objective good um, and ascribes to government and to the different branches of government uh, a, a positive role in promoting the, the, the human good, the common good, the human flourishing, uh, but, but not, to, not to the extent that the government dictates moral mandates uh, via religion to the people uh, but that there is kind of a baseline um, vision of moral good, transcendent human um, flourishing, and that the conservatives would believe that that is the role of government to defend that over against people would assault it, people who would assault it. And libertarians take a much looser view of the relationship between the government and the individual. Yeah, and I think in both cases, on sort of that side of the culture war, wherever they find themselves, there really is this idea uh, of the primacy or the most important thing is the individual over and against the government, and individuals do have the right um, to, to pursue things according to happiness. And I think if we, we just want to step back for a second here, because I think conservative ways of religious thinking or Christian thinking often find themselves in alignment more with this side of the culture war. But I think, uh, Samuel, can we step back in a second and say uh, what you just described, while I think can be a healthy way to, to run a society, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is hand in hand with Christianity, that Christianity does care about more than just the individual well-being, that there's a common good associated with it. We, we we want to care for other people, and that even um, the idea that uh, you, you sort of have the freedom to live your own life the way you want to is inconsistent with the, with the gospel, which is that we are bought with a price, that our lives are not our own. So, so I think we want to be careful when we talk about the culture war that we don't want to just naturally uh, align ourselves with one side of it, right? 
I think that's exactly right. And to kind of plumb the depths of what Christianity teaches about the social order and politics, you really have to go back to Genesis and see that the Bible teaches that humans are created in the image of God. Um, that right there is a foundational doctrine, um, not only for how we understand ourselves theologically, but also how, about how we understand ourselves as a society and politically. When, when the person right next to you is an image bearer of the eternal God, then you, have, you immediately have a relationship to them that is different than if, if they are simply and only kind of this self-created, um, totally autonomous entity. Um, you might arrive at a belief that you should preserve their rights even without um, believing that they are in the image of God. But if they are made in the image of God, then they are made for something. And so that's why the great catechisms and the great statements of faith throughout history, such as the Westminster Catechism, begins with, um, you know, what is, what is the, uh, what's the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the, the point of human existence becomes different when you see things through a Bible lens. And that, that can filter down to our, to our politics, not to where we are necessarily mandating Christianity, but, but to the point where we are articulating a vision of human flourishing that transcends partisanship, mm. because we don't see people simply as either allies to help us impose our ideology or obstacles that have to be overcome. We see them as fellow image bearers of the eternal God and that what we do as a country, what we do as a society has eternal impacts. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. And, and part of that, the implications of that then is as believers, as followers of Jesus, um, while we might sympathize with certain political issues on one side of the aisle, we don't want to thoughtlessly or mindlessly align ourselves with Republic republicanism or President, former President Trump or certain policies or all that. We might uh, want those things, but that doesn't mean that the Christianity and that side of the culture war is simply one and the same. Well, on the other side, Samuel, uh, we start talking about this word liberalism, which has to do with much more of the idea that if you and I and everybody part of the show this morning decided that independently we want to create a society, liberalism would suggest that we would sort of naturally come to the conclusion that everybody should be treated fairly and equitably and everybody should have the same opportunity. And, and um, so the, the role of the government actually, unlike uh, conservatism, the role of the government is to really intervene in a wide variety of ways to make sure everything is always equal all the time would be some of the foundational principles of liberalism. And, and as long as everything is equal all the time, then people are sort of free to follow whatever moral or ethic they want, uh, a sexual ethic. They can exp explore whatever they want to do, uh, any form of moral ethic, right? So liberalism on the, on the flip side of it that many people bristle at would be the idea of government and intervention, make sure it's all fair and then kind of do what you want to do. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty much accurate. It might be worth bringing in a distinction here between classical liberalism, uh, which is kind of this big picture um, political philosophy that uh, the founders of America inherited from other political philosophers in the English tradition, specifically in the 18th century. Um, and classical liberalism kind of refers to this uh, system of, of recognizing personal property, personal rights. Um, that that kind of thing we would we would support as Christians. We believe people have the right to own property. We believe that people have the right to um, to worship. We believe in religious liberty. Religious liberty is part of the heritage of classical liberalism. 
Um, the liberalism that I think uh, you and I are referring to when we talk about that which encroaches on uh, kind of Christian belief um, is contemporary liberalism or sometimes called progressivism. So um, the expression of contemporary liberalism or progressivism is that um, self-authenticating people get to do whatever or get to say or be whatever they feel like in their heart because meaning comes from their self-expression. And so to encroach on someone's self-expression means to encroach on their sense of meaning and to violate their rights. And that is an understanding of what it means, uh, of what rights means that I think is at odds with both the classical liberal and the Christian tradition, uh, neither of which have ever said that maximal realization of desire is uh, equivalent to personal liberty. Um, we've understood personal liberty to have limits. There are limits to, to the desires that we can fulfill. And that's a good thing that results in societal flourishing. But progressivism comes against that and says, no, we have to actualize people's desires because people derive meaning from their desires and to, to not actualize them, to not allow them to do whatever they want to marry whomever they want, no matter if it's a man or a woman, to do whatever they want to an unborn child. Um, we have to allow them that personal liberty because that is, that's where the essence of being human is. And, and that's where classical liberalism and Christianity would say, no, we, we don't think that. I love it. Well, we're in a, in a brief political philosophy class this morning with Samuel James, but I think it's helpful because I think many of us are impacted by the culture war going back and forth, just understanding these competing ideologies. Samuel, when we come back now, taking that as a foundation to be their side of it, I would love to get your thoughts on how the church can begin to work within these frameworks, being distinct from, but also still work within them and how we see bringing some light into the midst of this uh, moving forward. So chatting with Samuel James this morning about some of the culture wars and the witness of the church within them. Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge here this morning, and we are chatting with Samuel James about some of the culture wars going on in our country and how Christians can find themselves intersecting with but also staying apart from those culture wars. And Samuel, we talked a little bit about both sides of it. Let, let's talk uh, more about the progressivism or liberalism side of it for a bit, because I think from a fair-minded analysis point of view, most people are suggesting that though it might be a slow tide, that that is the tide that's washing in. Clearly, observers of Europe have watched secularism, liberalism, some of these different terms, progressivism, basically make their way through Europe as the pervading or dominant philosophy. And, and we don't seem to be too far behind in the United States. But what's interesting as an observer of that is that this probably is not going to be a permanent thing. And you're noticing some of the fractures that are beginning to take place within kind of this progressive anti-God, relativity, immorality, like all of that. So some of the fractures are beginning to show. So tell us what you see. It's very, very interesting because right now, if you kind of take a, a survey of the media landscape and even of higher education, you can kind of see pockets of people who do not identify as conservative, would certainly not identify as religious, but are nonetheless kind of pushing back against especially transgender ideology, um, anti-free speech, um, kind of moods and policies that are in place at a lot of colleges. 
Um, so I'm thinking of someone like Andrew Sullivan. Sullivan has made an incredible pivot because he spent most of the last 20 years kind of identifying evangelical Christians as basically America's version of Islamists. Hmm. Um, he, he coined the term Christianist to refer to people who oppose same-sex marriage because of Christianity, and that's you know obviously a combination of the word Christian and Islamist. Um, but what's been interesting is that Sullivan has really turned into a whistleblower against his own kind of um, ideological uh, party um, because of transgenderism. And Sullivan identifies as a gay man, but he has been very vocal in his criticism of transgender um, kind of re-education, the policies that we see in place in public schools, um, that sort of thing. And for that, Sullivan has been brutal, brutally pilloried by uh, progressive media establishments. He had a very, he had a highly read column um, in New Yorker magazine and was pressured. New Yorker magazine was pressured to cut that column because in the column he was he was saying, you know, I don't think we should we should be telling nine year olds that they need gender reassignment surgery. And uh, editors and writers at, at The New Yorker said, we want this guy out of here. And this is a guy with clear progressive bona fides. Um, and on the other hand, you have somebody like Jonathan Haidt, who's a moral psychologist, who has a, a huge following uh, along secular educators. And he's been writing books with the titles like The Coddling of the American Mind, talking about how American universities have become soft kind of intellectual coddling experiences for progress, young progressive students. And, uh, and uh, for that, Haidt has been called a conservative, a, a, you know, a closet kind of uh, stealth double agent for conservatism, even though he, he had no problem with things like same-sex marriage and abortion, but simply because he says, you know, I don't think we need trigger warnings before someone reads um, you know, William F. Buckley. I don't think we need content warnings before someone reads a piece of moral philosophy by someone in the 18th century. Um, he gets criticized. And so what you're seeing is this very serious internal tension between this kind of new objective morality, and think about that in like all caps, new objective morality that contemporary progressivism is trying to set up versus kind of members of the old liberal order who are saying, well, no, I mean, we believe in these things ethically, but I thought we were supposed to believe in also debate and free speech. And so that's where the tension is really coming to a head, especially if you look at media institutions like the New York Times, where this has resulted in a lot of internal drama for them. So it's serious. It's real. Yeah, there's going to be quite a bit to pay attention to here in these years ahead. Maybe we just have less than a minute, Samuel. You gave me a pretty interesting quote from theologian Russell Moore about some of the sexual revolution part of this as well. And he had a, a pretty intriguing analogy to refugees. So give us that here as we wrap things up. Yeah, I love what Russell Moore says. Russell Moore says that the sexual revolution will always have a refugee crisis. And what he meant by that is there will always be people who kind of buy in to the spirit of the age. And then down the road, they will be burnt by it. They will be shamed. They will be hurt because this cannot give them what it promises. And so the responsibility of the church is to be able to receive those refugees of the sexual revolution, of contemporary progressivism, and to give them something, to give them the gospel that will heal them, that will give them a robust worldview, and also just to welcome them. We can't hang this over people's heads. We have to be uh, agents of grace and on mission 
for the kingdom, not simply for our political worldview. No, I really appreciate it. So uh, people that are part of the Faith Radio family here, if they want to check out how the secular revolt against liberalism can awaken people to reality, that's a mouthful. You can text the studio if you want to know where to find Samuel James' work as well. It's really helpful on talking about the culture wars. So text in at 877-933-2484. You can also just go to thegospelcoalition.org and search for Samuel James, and you'll find some of the articles on this as well. Samuel, thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of the morning. Thank you very much. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 21st of July. Well, one more time, congratulations to our friends in Wisconsin that might follow the NBA. The Milwaukee Bucks are the NBA champions as of last night, and I just appreciate more of a smaller town winning the NBA championship like that. I'm always a bit of a sap for that sort of thing. And sure, appreciate being part of your morning this morning. Loved our last conversation as well. Just a reminder from Samuel James that uh, though we might be more sympathetic towards liberalism or conservatism or these different sort of political philosophies and ideologies. Our final allegiance and our only allegiance lies to the eternal kingdom of Jesus. These two will fail at the end of the day, all forms of it will, but his eternal kingdom will reign. So continue to surrender, follow, yield, and say yes to following Jesus again today. We'll catch you tomorrow morning, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.